Philippians chapter 2, we'll be reading from verses 1 through 11. And when you find that passage, um, if you will stand with me for the reading of God's Word, if you're able to, this is an opportunity we, we stand because when the Scripture speaks, God speaks, and so we stand out of respect for the Word of God. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, the realities, the reality that you have created, that you have ordained, that you have decreed, and that has worked its way out in history and in time and is still unfolding is amazing and is redounds to your glory, to your honor. Lord God, we can hardly fathom it. Give us minds as we delve into what you've revealed in Scripture about the incarnation, about what we call Christmas and how should that should influence our life the whole year round. Lord, help us. Give us minds to understand Help us to have this mindset that the Apostle Paul is speaking to the Philippians about and you are speaking to us about through your word. Give us grace to understand. Give me clarity. Bless this time, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we were, originally, we were going to work through this passage on Christmas Day But it's one of those passages that whether it's Christmas Day or whether it's New Year's Day or whether it's any day of the year that we keep coming back to. In fact, that's part of the whole point of this passage is the continual mindset that is supposed to be part of us as Christians. Now, if you think about the Christmas story, and hopefully many of you, you had to stay home and a lot of the plans changed. But hopefully during that time and that day, maybe you have a tradition of you know, picking up the, the scriptures and reading from Luke 1 and 2 or from Matthew or maybe a compilation. Maybe you go back to Isaiah. 
But usually during Christmas, we often think about one part of the Christmas story. We focus on the aspect of the baby in the manger and Joseph and Mary and the shepherds, and all of that is true and good. On, on Christmas Day, uh, I read Luke 1 and 2 with Ashley, and at home, it was just the two of us, and it was wonderful, and it was beautiful, and it was amazing. But if you only take that small part in isolation, then you're missing the full force of what the Christmas story is all about. And so that's why I wanted to take us to Philippians 2, because Philippians 2, as you've already, we've already read through it, and as we are going to work through it, it takes a step back and it looks at the arc of Christmas. Not just the one plot point of the baby in the manger, which is amazing and magnificent, but then it gives the whole plot arc of Christmas and why it's significant and why it's amazing. And if you understand that whole plot arc, then the joy, the wonder, the glory of Christmas lasts not only on Christmas, but lasts the year round. It shapes your whole mindset year round. It gives you resolution. If we're talking about New Year's, we talk about resolutions. And as we think about that, it, you should, one of your resolutions and our constant revolution, not just this year, but every year, should be to come back to the Christmas humility displayed in this passage and have it shape our minds year round. Now, before we launch in, we're going to focus on verses 5 through 11. Let me remind you a little bit of the background of Philippians. Nice thing is we went through Philippians about two years ago and worked through the whole book. So some of you may remember the focal point of Philippians, but let me just remind uh, you of the basic facts. Paul is writing Philippians in the early 60s AD. He's imprisoned in Rome awaiting trial from Caesar, his appeal to Caesar. And he's writing to Philippi, a church that had been founded uh, at least a decade prior. And Philippi, is, you need, what you need to know about Philippi is it's a Roman colony. It's a Roman colony. Now, what does that mean? Essentially, it's an extension of Rome. You have Roman citizenship there. In fact, that's part of uh, why uh, Philippian citizens were so proud. They were Roman citizens. Their identity was Roman. And what Paul is doing in this letter is he's writing and he's thanking the Philippians for their partnership in the gospel. And that partnership has a very tangible expression of financial support. Financial support for Paul and his ministry, uh, support in terms of sending uh, Epaphroditus uh, to Paul in Rome to help support him as he's imprisoned there. But Paul is not only thanking the Philippians for their gift, he's also correcting a mindset uh, that have led to tensions in the local church. You see, if there's one thing that Paul is addressing, it's ad he's addressing factiousness. There's clues as he's writing that there is factiousness, that there is um, there's disagreement. You can see that with Yodia and Syntyche, those two ladies that he mentions later on in Philippians 4. There's tensions, there's factions, but what he address, addresses is not just the factions themselves and exhorts them to partnership and towards the same mind for the sake of the gospel. He also pinpoints where does that mindset come from? How do you change that mindset? And again, that mindset is really coming from the culture, uh, in large measure, that was around Roman Philippi. You see, as I mentioned, 
It's a big deal to have be a citizen of Rome. There's many privileges and rights that go along with that. There's a status that goes along with being a Roman citizen. But also part of that culture, if you're a Roman in that culture, the natural mindset is that it is a game to seek higher and higher status in that culture, a status at the expense of others. And we can empathize with that. We can understand that. In our own culture, we often see those who are just climbing, whether it's a corporate ladder or the political ladder, and they do so, and they seek status at the expense of others. Well, that same mindset has been around for a long old time, and it's part of the mindset that Paul is addressing here. You can notice in verses 1 through 4, what is he talking to them about? He's, in a large measure, this is the focal point, the central point of the whole letter, where he is saying, don't do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, which is totally antithetical. It's totally opposite of what the mindset of that culture was. Instead of seeking to exalt self, instead of seeking to promote self and your own status, Instead, you count the other more significant than yourself, and you serve. And that's what he's exhorted them to, leading right into our passage this morning, verses 5 through 11. And the main idea for our text this morning comes from verse 5, because verse 5 governs really this whole section. Notice what Paul says, have this mindset among you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Now, what he is doing is he is exhorting the Philippians towards a mindset. It's a present command, and so what Paul is doing is he's not just saying flip a switch And for at least a moment, have this mindset. He's talking about you continually, you in an ongoing way, have this mindset. What mindset? Well, the one he just referenced in verses 1 through 4. The mindset that says, no, it's not about me. It's not about selfish ambition. It's not about my status. It's not about uh, climbing the ladder, but it's about considering others more important than selves. That's the mindset that Paul is talking about in verse 5. Have this mindset and have it continually and have it among you. It's actually a plural command. He's addressing the whole church and he's saying, amongst all of you, you need to have this mindset continually. It's not just a mindset you have individually. It's a mindset that works its way out corporately in the church. And then Paul's pivot which is where the Christmas part comes in, or will come in, the pivot is this little phrase, which also is in Christ Jesus. So Paul's, th- that command, that command, have this mindset that I just laid out for you in verses 1 four, through 4, that's the mindset you need to continually have amongst yourself as the church And now, let me say something, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, Christ Jesus, the founder of of Christianity, the the only reason the Philippians are together at all, the mindset I'm exhorting you to is the exact same mindset in Christ Jesus. And then Paul, in verses 6 through 11, goes on to 
expound upon what does that mindset look like in action? What did it look like in action for Jesus Christ? And so that's why the big idea, that our big idea comes from verse 5, because it's the same big idea that Paul has. Have the mindset of Christmas humility among you, which Christ Jesus adopted for you. Have the mindset of Christmas humility among you, which Christ Jesus adopted for you. And what you're going to see as we walk through verses 6 through 11, this is one of my favorite passages in Scripture, because it's so, when you think about it, when you meditate on it, which is exactly what Paul wants you to do, because he's talking about a mindset, there's three key movements in the passage that we're going to look at. First, in verses 6 through 7, first part of verse 7, you're going to see Jesus emptying himself from the form of God to the form of a slave. You can think of it spatially as Jesus taking a step from heaven to earth. And then what you're going to see in the second part of verse 7 through verse 8 is not only that movement, but then the movement of Jesus lowering himself from the figure of a man to the figure of a despised criminal. Now we're talking about from the earth to the grave. And then you're going to see in verses 9 through 11 a further spatial movement from the grave to being super exalted to have the highest name for the glory of the Father, back to heaven. And I want you to keep that spatial mindset as we work through this. So first, let's see this first movement of Christ emptying himself from the form of God to the form of a slave. Look at verse 6. So remember, remember verse 5. You've got to keep verse 5 in, uh, in your mind. This is Paul's exhorting the Philippians to a mindset, and he's going to lay out how Christ exemplified perfectly that mindset, and all of this is supposed to motivate the Philippians to that mindset. So as we walk through this, you need to see what Christ has done, but not stop there. It's got to motivate you towards a mindset. But let's look at verse 6. Verse 6, who, talking about Jesus, existing in the form of God. Now the main verb in this section is, Paul's going to say he didn't consider uh, to be equal with God something to be grasped. That's the main verb. But he starts with a little phrase, a little verbal phrase, existing in the form of God that prefaces what he's going to say with the main verb. Existing in the form of God. That little phrase prefaces not only the, ver- uh, the next couple verbs that he's going to use. What does that mean? existing in the form of God. And this little verb here, it's not just saying, oh, at one point in time he existed in the form of God. It's a continual sort of mindset. It's saying uh, Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ has always been existing in the form of God. But what does that mean? What does it mean to talk about the form of God? What is God does? God's invisible. He, 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 yes, he manifests his presence in different ways at different times. But what does it mean? What does Paul mean when he's talking about the form of God? Well, there's a couple ways we can look at this. One, 
uh, if you look at ahead a little bit to verse 7, he's going to use a kind of a contrasting phrase talking about the form of a slave. And he's contrasting that with what he is doing here, talking about the form of God. And so you ask yourself, well, what did it mean for Jesus to be in the form of a slave? Well, what Paul is going to, and we'll spend some time there when we get there to verse 7, but what Paul is doing is he is going to say, Jesus really did become a slave, a servant. It's not just that he looked like one, he was one. And we will see that once we get to verse 7 and unpack that idea a little bit more. So this idea of form, it's not just that you have appearance. Yes, that is part of the idea, but it's the idea that you have an appearance that is manifesting a reality. Jesus was a slave. He was a servant. And so he manifested that reality. Uh, Maybe I can use another illustration to help you think about this. Let's talk about the form of the president or the form of the presidency, if you want to think about it like that. What does it mean to bear the form of the president of the United States? It means that you are the president of the United States, and because you have that reality to you, there is an external form, an external manifestation of what that means. So if you are the president, then you have a Secret Service entourage, you have certain rights and responsibilities under our Constitution. There is an external form that manifests the reality of being the president. And in such a way, there is, for a slave, when what Paul mentions here, to be a servant, there's an external reality manifested because of that. And if we talk about the form of God, then if you are God, then there, is only, there are external realities, rights, attributes, responsibilities, uh, all of who God is, because uh, someone is God, a person is God, then there is a form, there's a manifestation of that. And so what Paul is saying here is the person of Jesus existed, was existing, it's a continuous idea, was continually existing in the form of God. And we describe this as Christ, the person of Christ, pre-incarnate state. That as long as God has existed, the person of the Son has existed, and he has, all the, he has the form of God. He has all the rights, the privileges, the power, the manifestation of all that, of who God is. In being God, Jesus has that same form, which allows Paul to both hold that there is one God, and yet... You can have different persons of that one God having the form of God. And Paul is getting and framing what he is about to say with that starting idea. you got to keep in mind that this person, the person of Jesus Christ, has always existed in the form of God. He has been God. He has all the rights, the privileges, the responsibilities, all of the the the. the because he is God, he manifests that. He has what God has. And then what does Paul do? Existing in the form of God, or although existing in the form of God, he did not 
consider being equal with God. So that's a, that's a parallel idea, that being equal with God and having the form of God, that's a parallel idea. And Paul is saying, although he had it, he did not consider being equal with God something to be grasped for advantage. Now, your translation might read differently. This is a really hard uh, word and passage to translate. There's a lot of debate among theologians, and yet there's kind of uh, becoming more of a consensus that this is a way of talking about the way that this, this is structured here. This is a way of talking about seeking or grasping hold of something for advantage. Maybe you have it, maybe you don't, but in this case, Jesus has it. What does he have? He has the form of God, which means he is equal to God, but the the, the surprising thing that Paul is bringing out here is that though he has it, he has the status, he has the rights, he has the responsibilities, he has everything that it means to be God, and he does not consider that's something to be clung on to for advantage. Which is utterly stunning when you're, given who Paul is speaking to. Who is Paul speaking to? He's speaking to Philippians, Roman citizens who have status and who in that culture, the mindset is you seek status and you hold on to it and you leverage it for every advantage you can get from it. And Paul is saying Christ had it He had the most high status he could possibly have, and he did not consider it as something to be grasped hold of for advantage. Now, you might ask the question, wait, 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 wait. Um, In what way would Jesus, the person of the Son from all eternity, how would he have clung on to being equal with God for advantage? Because he already has it. Right? There's no doubt about that. Paul's saying you, he has the form of God. He is equal with God. So in what way would he cling on to that, hold on to that for advantage or leverage that? Well, this is where reading through the whole rest of where Paul goes in this section helps us out. Where does it end? Where does 6 through 11 end? It ends with Christ in heaven, super exalted with every sentient being in the universe, bowing in reverence to to Jesus as Yahweh. But where did he have to go to get there, at least as far as how Paul narrates it? He went through the cross. He went through suffering. Now, could he have had the super exaltation that happens in the latter part of the passage without having to go through the cross, without having to become a human? Absolutely. Because why? Because the Son has the form of God. He has all the status, the privileges. God could have just presented, uh, the, the Father could have just presented the Son from heaven and said, here is my Son. By the way, there's one God, but there's three persons, and each of the three persons is fully God, has the form of God. Well, here's my Son, and all of the universe bow down to him in worship and just skipped the middle section. That could have happened, and Jesus instead didn't cling to his status to bypass the service, the suffering, and bypass all of that. He didn't cling to it in advantage. He's like, yeah, let's skip that. Let's just go right to the end point. No, he didn't. 
And that's what Paul is developing. He did not consider being equal with God something to be grasped, something to be leveraged for advantage. But what did he do? Verse 7, there is a huge but there. So that's one mindset. He, the, the, the son could have grasped it for advantage. He had every right to. But instead, what did he do? Verse 7, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Now, what does that mean, to empty yourself? Well, thankfully, the way Paul structures this, he tells us what it means to empty yourself. Because there's a couple more verbal phrases that come after that verb emptying that describe what it means to, for the Son, the eternal Son, who is existing in the form of God. He never gives that up. What does he do? He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. And it is slave. It's the word that's normally meant for slave. There's a couple words that are used for service, servitude, and this is the word for slave. Taking the form of a slave. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Jesus was, a, he was born to uh, Mary and his uh, adopted father is Joseph, and uh, you know he had a, he was a carpenter. He wasn't a slave. But what Paul is doing here is he is following um, the New Testament mindset of uh, one of the foremost Old Testament passages and uh, chapters and books in Isaiah, which describes prophesies the ministry of Jesus Christ. And he is looking in the latter chapters of Isaiah. And what you have to understand is, say, from Isaiah 40 um, through 55-ish, you meet the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh. And what happens, I'll summarize these chapters for you, but what happens and what you come to understand is this servant has been kind of hidden. He's been kind of back in the shadows but then God sends him, the servant, and he sends the servant to rescue not only Israel, but uh, those from the nations. And what is his rescue operation? His rescue operation reaches a pinnacle in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. And I'm not going to read all of that, but I want to read the first few verses. Isaiah 52, 13. So all this groundwork has already been set up by this point in Isaiah of there's this servant. He's the servant of the Lord. He's the servant of Yahweh. He's the servant of God. And he is sending him to rescue. And then we hear this in Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty 
that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And then it goes on to describe how the servant suffers and dies and dies on behalf of not only Israelites, but also those from the nations who are this servant's people. And so remember what I said before, when Paul says that the person of the Son, the person of Christ Jesus, emptied himself and he's taking the form of a slave, he's not just saying, well, he looked like a slave but wasn't, he's looking at Isaiah and saying he was a slave. Who was he a slave to? The father, in the sense of a servant, that he, here's my sent one on a mission, He's the servant of God. He's the servant of the Father to accomplish what? To accomplish a mission for serving the people of God, the many, and that's how Isaiah 53 describes it. And the Son has no external majesty, no external form. He has the form of a slave because he's functioning like a slave for the purpose, for God's honor, and for God's mission, and what is God's mission? To save his people. That's what it meant. It didn't mean, it never, now, ne- never believe this. Never believe that Jesus for an instant gave up being God, or even gave up his attributes, or even didn't have the ability to use his attributes. We look in the Gospels, and God, um, Jesus does use his divine attributes. He never gave up what, was start, what verse 6 starts with. He never gave up being in the form of God. He never gave that up. It's a continuous reality. But what did he do? He took the form of a slave. Essentially, the picture is Christ took a cloak of, of what it looked like to be a slave and covered up the reality of the form of being God. He never gave up being God, but he took the form of a slave But to do so, we get the second thing that Paul uses to describe what it means for Christ to empty himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by becoming, or by having become in the likeness of men. Here's Christmas right there. Becoming in the likeness of men. And again, Paul is saying, yes, there's an external display. There's the likeness of what it means to be a man. But, but uh, Paul is not saying he just looked like it, but really wasn't. He's saying, yeah, he took that reality. He took that nature of being a man, a human being. And both of those things mean, is what it means to empty himself. Instead of the Son, from all eternity, leveraging his status to achieve the acclaim and the praise that happens at the end of this passage, he didn't, he didn't grasp hold of it for advantage. Instead, he cloaked his deity, which he always possessed, with humanity so that he didn't look like much. And that's Christmas. That's what we normally focus on at Christmas time: is the humility, the becoming a man, taking that nature as a man on. So what is the son emptying himself of? Not his deity, not his exercise of his deity, not his ultimate privileges and rights. He's giving up the, the claim 
to leverage his deity for his own benefit, which is it flies exactly in the face of the Philippian culture and our culture. If you have it, you flaunt it. If you've got it, you use it. Jesus didn't do that. He did the exact opposite of that. He served. He served his father for the benefit of his people. So that's the first step. The step from heaven to earth. To empty himself from the form of God to the form of a slave. To not cling to his status. To not leverage his status. To give up that right that he did have for the sake of serving humanity. But then there's another step. It's not just a step from heaven to earth. There's a further step, and this is what we get in the second part of verse 7 through verse 8. Lowering itself from the figure of a man to the figure of a despised criminal. Look at the second part of verse 7, where we left off. And being found in figure as a man. Now, wait a minute. Paul just referenced that. Didn't he just say uh, that the person of the Son became in likeness of men? Yes, he did. Now he's reiterating that idea, but he's taking another step. He's saying, yeah, he was found in figure as a man, and what did he do? Verse 8, he lowered himself. This parallels the idea of what? He emptied himself to come from heaven to earth. He emptied himself. But now as a man, he's found as a man, that's been completed. So as a man, as a human being, he lowers himself. The descent of the Son of God from heaven to earth was part of his descent, but not the final form of his descent. His descent keeps going from being a man to where? He lowered himself. Now notice, it's all voluntary. The emptying was voluntary. The lowering is voluntary. Lowering how? How did he lower himself? Becoming obedient. Obedient to who? Obedient to the Father. The Father is the one who is from, we can say from Isaiah, the Father is the one who sent the Son on this rescue mission. So the Son is obedient to the Father. And that would characterize his whole life and his ministry and what we read in the Gospels. But Paul wants to highlight this unto death. You think about the descent. How do you become as, what's the lowest state of a human being possible? The grave. Or is it? Because you can have death and then you can have death. And really, it's not just the grave that is the lowest point of humanity. It is death on a cross. Because death on a cross in the Roman world was absolutely the lowest of the low. Uh, crucifixion was normally reserved for slaves, which is appropriate because what did Jesus take? He took the form of a slave. And crucifixion was designed to be maximally painful and maximally shameful. You are displayed naked before the world, a bleeding mess to say, don't you dare go against Rome because this is what's going to happen to you. You're a slave, you're a brigand, you're a rebel, you're an enemy of the state, therefore we will torture you and we will shame you to the uttermost degree. 
I mean, the, the, the language of the cross, uh, in some of my study, it's, it was almost like you wouldn't say it. You wouldn't say the word cross in polite company, like a swear word. This is the kind of shame. And so you keep in mind the visual. Where did the son, the son never gave up being in the form of God. That's continual, being in the form of God. He's always been equal with God, yet he didn't leverage it. What did he do? He emptied himself, and then he lowered himself. He emptied himself from heaven to earth, and then from earth as a man, he lowered himself to the cross. Why? Isaiah 53 tells us why. Because that death wasn't just any death, nor was it just even a shameful death. It was a death where the Son, the eternal Son, was loaded with the sins of his people, loaded with the sins of of those who would entrust themselves to him from Jew and Gentile, from all the nations. And even the suffering of the cross didn't match the the eternal weight of wrath that the Son was bearing in substitution for his people so that he could rescue them from their sin. It's not just death on a cross, it's death that is a substitute death for his people, which is what Isaiah 53 makes clear. The servant is on a mission for the father. The servant obeys. The servant is crushed by the father on the cross for the sake of sinners like you and like me. And he didn't have to. He had the form of God. He could have stayed and had all the acclaim he wanted without doing this. And yet he did it. But it doesn't stop there. Remember I said the Christmas story. Where does the Christmas story show up? Uh, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of man, being found as a man. That's, that's Christmas. That's what we focus on normally. But it's part of this whole arc. Where does the arc end? Verses 9 through 11. Super exalted to have the highest name for the glory of the Father. Verse 9 begins with a a little conjunction. And conjunctions are very important as you read the scriptures, especially in the letters. They tell you how this idea relates to this idea. Well, verse 9 starts with a little conjunction um, that you could translate therefore or wherefore. And what it tells you is because of all that just came ahead of this, because of verses 6 through 8, because of that, therefore... And now the focus switches from the Son, from the Christ, to the Father. Wherefore, also, God has super exalted him. This word is like, you're exalted, but like exalted to a very, very high degree, which makes sense with, based on what Paul says. Wherefore, but notice what's happening. The Father, this is the Father's response to the Son's mission, to his humiliation, to his emptying, to his lowering, to his lowering to even the lowest point of death on a cross. Wherefore, God also super exalted him. He looked like he had the lowest status, and the Father super exalted him and graciously gave to him the name, which is above every name. What's the name? Well, let's read the rest of verses 10 through 11, and we get some clues. In order that, at the name of Jesus, every knee 
might bow, of the heavens and of the earth and of under the earth, and every tongue might confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, what you have to understand, a couple things. One thing, well, what's the name? We see it there at the end of verse 11. Jesus Christ is Lord. Kurios. Kurios. Which is usually the translation in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for God's covenant name, Yahweh. So the name we're talking about here is God's personal covenant name by which he reveals himself to humanity, a name he doesn't give to anyone else. Second thing that backs this up, turn to Isaiah 45. Remember, Paul's already probably thinking Isaiah. We know for sure he's thinking Isaiah 45 because he quotes from it in verses 9 through 11. And the big deal in uh, a lot of these same latter chapters in Isaiah where, where um, God is saying, here's my servant, and here's what my servant's going to do, right alongside that idea is I'm gonna do, God's saying, I'm going to do these things to exalt my name above any and every so-called God. And so you get astounding statements um, in this, and you'll see some of them. Uh, look at Isaiah 45, 20. God is in this not just for Israel, that's definitely true in Isaiah, but it's, he's also in it for the whole world and for his exaltation in the world. And so we read this in Isaiah 45, 20. Assemble yourselves. So this is God speaking. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told it this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, Yahweh? If you've got capital L-O-R-D in your Bibles, that's just a way of describing God's personal covenant name, Yahweh. Was it not I, Yahweh, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none besides me. God is highlighting, there's no other God. I am exclusive. Uh, I don't give my name. I don't give my glory to anyone else. Keep reading, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other by myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return, here it is, to me. To who? Yahweh. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in Yahweh it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In Yahweh, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So what is God doing? God is saying, I'm God. There is no other. What's going to happen in the future is every knee is going to bow to me one way or the other, one of two ways. Every knee is going to bow to God in one of two ways, either in grudging acknowledgement of his lordship and supremacy or in recognizing his salvation as a savior. Two ways. But you see what Paul is doing by quoting this language. Go back to Philippians. The Father, because of what the Son has done, super exalts the Son, 
graciously gives to him the name that is above every name. What name is that? It is the name of Yahweh. It is the name that God doesn't give to anyone but God. And you're like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You said, and Paul said back in verse 6, that the Son has always existed in the form of God. And having Yahweh's name, if, you, if you're God, you have Yahweh's name. So the Son must have had Yahweh's name from all eternity. Yes. So what is God giving the Son in verses 9 through 11? He's giving him the recognition and acclaim from the nations for that reputation. Remember what I said in Philippi? You do whatever you can to boost your reputation. You leverage whatever you can to to be exalted and acclaimed. Well, Jesus didn't do that. What did he do? He went, became a servant. He suffered. He purchased people for God from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. The father exalts the son. And what does the father actually give the son? He's always had this name, but now he presents to the world, Jesus Christ has the name Yahweh. He has the reputation of Yahweh, such that what was happening in Isaiah 45 is going to happen to Jesus Christ in the future. That's the purpose of the Father giving this name. Verse 10, in order that, at the name of Jesus, because he has the name Yahweh, because he has done what he has done, Jesus has the reputation of God's name, the fame of God's name, if you will. In order that, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And then look at where where the knees are coming from. The knees are coming from in heaven, the place the Son was from all eternity and who knew who he was, and on earth, the place where he emptied himself and stepped down to save a, a sinful people and under the earth. And under the earth is usually a reference to the grave, where he went after his death on the cross. He, trans, he went through all of those regions, and every single sentient creature of all of those regions is going to bow the knee in the future at the feet of Jesus Christ because he is Yahweh, because he is given the name of Yahweh by God the Father, And he is given that reputation to universal acclaim, and that will happen. Every knee will bow, and verse 11, every tongue confess. And the idea of confess here, it's not confessing sin. It's the idea of a formal confession of a reality. And what reality is that? Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what that means is, just like we saw in Isaiah, that's one of two ways. Every knee will bow, but there's two options. Bowing either in grudging acceptance and acknowledgement that, yes, Jesus Christ is Lord. Or bowing in joyful adoration as one who has been saved by that Lord. There's the bowing and confession of a broken and humbled enemy, which we all start out as. And there's the bowing in joyful adoration of being rescued after having surrendered. And bowing to Jesus as having the name Lord, as having the name Yahweh, doesn't diminish the Father's glory. It actually redounds to it because what does that end? For the glory of the Father. 
All of this is going to happen. The father exalts his son ultimately so that the father himself is exalted. It's amazing. And Christmas is right in the middle. The, 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 the miracle of the incarnation is right in the middle. But why is Paul doing all of this? Don't forget why Paul is doing all of this because of verse 5. Have this mindset. Continually have this mindset among you, church, which was also in Christ Jesus. Everything that Paul has narrated from verses 6 through 11 is to show and reinforce the command of the type of mindset that the Philippians are to have. What was that mindset? A mindset not of seeking to exalt self, not of climbing over others, but instead considering others as better than oneself and serving them. And he says, exhibit A, Jesus Christ, because that's exactly what the Son did. As you celebrate Christmas, and we're done with the celebration this year, aren't we? But we can't lose this. You know, if you're into the holiday buzz and the, you know, the, the opening presents and the fuzzies and the, you know, I get it. I, I like it too. But then it goes away, doesn't it? Well, this can't go away. And it doesn't because it's real. Christmas really happened, and the Son is really, truly, genuinely super exalted at the right hand of God after having gone through death. He's at the right hand of the Father, and He's coming, and every knee will bow. And you find yourself losing the wonder, the joy, the awe of Christmas, then you need to focus back on this, because this will carry you through year-round, and we are designed to stand in awe, to have our jaws drop open at the wonder and acclaim of the Son who didn't have to, who humbled himself, emptied himself for the sake of obeying his Father and for rescuing those who entrust themselves to him. That should bring you to wonder and awe year-round, and that is the foundation of the mindset that Paul is saying. You start with wonder and awe, You see the humility, and then that should drive your mindset continually. First towards Christ. Will you bow in the way? Will you bow now in repentance, laying down arms, saying, I don't live for myself, I'm done trying to rule my own life. I will repent, turn my allegiance from sin and self. I will turn from sin uh, and I will obey the Christ. I will trust in the work of the Christ, the the, the necessity of the Son having to humble himself to ransom a people. Will you bow in the joy of salvation from your sin now? Or will you bow in grudging acknowledgement when it's too late? You will bow. We will all bow before Jesus Christ because he has the name Yahweh. Do it in joyful, humble surrender, seeking yourself, seeking selfish ambition, 
seeking your own life, seeking to rule your own life, do it now so that you can bow before him in joy at that day rather than in grudging acknowledgement. That's where it starts. Your mindset first towards Christ and then towards others. You exist not to enhance your own status or reputation, but to further the reputation of Christ. That's why you exist. Even if you're not a believer, even if you haven't entrusted yourself to Christ, that's why you exist. You may be rebelling, but that's why you exist, to further the reputation of Christ. But as a Christian, that's who Paul was addressing in the church you exist to, not to enhance your own status or reputation, but to further the reputation of Christ through the proclamation of good news in partnership with the local church. That's part of what Paul says in Philippians. It's a partnership deal. Uh, Christ, uh, the, the Son has saved a people for himself, and we are in partnership together to do what? To further his reputation through the proclamation of the gospel. That is what we do. And then you serve in that partnership. You serve others in the local church, considering them as more important than yourself so that together you can further the gospel. And this is why this message is appropriate for year-round, but also especially Christmas and New Year's because this is the resolution. This is the mindset that must govern our thoughts, our thoughts towards Christ, and our thoughts towards each other, especially as members of Faith Bible Church. So have the mindset of Christmas humility among you, which Christ Jesus adopted for you. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, you are Lord. You are the super exalted one. You have the name Yahweh. You have always had it, but now we know it, and now we can praise you for it. Your rescue, your salvation, your mission is astounding, and Christmas is a small part of it connected with the rest of it. We praise you from, we praise you. We bow our knees before you. We sing, that's what we try to do when we sing. We sing your praises, O Lord God. Lord, help us to year-round have this mindset of seeing you, worshiping you, standing in awe of you, delighting in you, loving you, and then serving and striving together for the sake of the gospel, serving one another, considering one another as more important than self, because that's what you did for us. We praise you. Lord, we long for that day when the whole world, when every, not just the whole world, but every creature that has a mind to think and has the ability to bow and to sing your praise will do so, O Lord God. Pray that if there are any who have not done that in joy and humility now would do so, so that they might enjoy bow before you as the sovereign Lord and Savior, rather than as a defeated enemy. Lord, do your work. Lord Jesus, we love you. We cannot say enough. Help us to live lives that reflect these realities. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.